0: Welcome to Legal Management Talk, official podcast of the Association of Legal Administrators. I'm your host, Christina Vragovich. Joining us on our podcast today is Link Kristen, an expert on the particular struggles among attorneys regarding substance abuse. Today he's speaking with us about the ethics and liability concerns surrounding this topic. Welcome, Link.
1: Good morning. Nice to be with you.
0: Thank you for being here. Now, uh, you referenced a study in your uh, annual conference presentation, a study by Hazelden, Betty Ford, and the American Bar Association Commission on Lawyer Assistance Programs titled The Prevalence of Substance Abuse and Other Mental Health Concerns Among American Attorneys. Now, this study revealed that there's, there's a kind of a crisis among attorneys in this area. So, So, tell us about some of those numbers and what you found most surprising about the study.
1: Sure, I'll be happy to. I should say as a predicate that for decades now, at least those in the legal profession recognized that lawyers and legal professionals had a unique problem and were probably more addicted than the general population. There were some studies done 20, 30 years ago That were fairly incomplete. One study just involved one state, but those studies also said that lawyers had a higher rate of addiction. And if people have practiced law, I practiced 25 years, they recognize that we're in a profession that has always had a robust culture of drinking and addiction. Um, But this is the first study that's evidence-based um Really, in the history of the legal profession, and it came out early in two thousand and sixteen and I think people are just becoming aware of it. Uh, it got a lot of national attention, but the results are nothing short of staggering and i don 't think it 's an overstatement to say that we have identified what I think is the number one crisis in the legal profession. The study itself sampled almost thirteen thousand licensed employed attorneys from 19 states about alcohol use, drug use, depression, anxiety, and stress. And we're gonna focus today primarily on the alcohol results, Um, but um, the number one result was that uh, as high as 36% of active practicing lawyers tested positive for hazardous drinking. Um, so if you think of that, that's as high as 4 out of 10 lawyers practicing today. Um, I like to think of – I don't like to – imagine if your doctor who was uh, doing surgery on you, there was a 4 in 10 chance that they were impaired uh, with, with a drinking problem. Imagine if there were a pilot flying your plane today and there was a 4 out of 10 chance they were impaired. Um, it's an absolutely – Um, uh, staggering number, and it should scare everybody in the profession, all the clients, and it should actually scare, I think, our society. Um, Just so you can put this in context, the average for a broad, highly educated non-attorney workforce, but highly educated uh, people, dentists, doctors, pharmacists, MBAs, you name it, is 11%. So we're talking 36% at the top of attorneys who are addicted versus 11% of um, highly educated professional. The general population is about 10%. So that number alone, um, if if you're a client or if you're a lawyer and you're running a law firm, if you're a malpractice carrier, um, should create really significant concern. I think it's interesting, too, that the study revealed that the depression rate is 28% of active lawyers, and during their career, almost half of them have uh, significant depression issues. But a depression rate today, of a current rate of 28%, is four times the national average. The national average is about 7% of our population is actively depressed, and that number with lawyers is 28% so that depression can be paralyzing and it can impair the lawyer or legal professional at the same level and in many of the same ways that alcohol can. Um, you asked me about any interesting findings besides these numbers and I did, I did uh, look at a few things in the study that I find interesting. Um, it's revealed in the study that the highest rate of alcohol impairment occurs during the first 10 years of practice for a lawyer and I see this as an extension from law school which is a culture in law school of being competitive uh, playing hard and working hard it kind of starts in law school and that first 10 years of practice now is especially difficult it's very competitive to get a job it's very competitive to keep your job You're an associate, often you're underpaid, even if you're paid well, you're working up to 80 to 100 hours a week. You're worried about the brand new loans you took out of a quarter million dollars. You're worried about whether you'll be on a partner track. I'm not surprised by that, but it's interesting that the younger, less experienced lawyers also have uh, the most significant problems with alcohol impairment. They asked the lawyers also, I think this is interesting, they asked them in the study what their biggest obstacles were to recovery. And um, they said they were worried about other people finding out they had a problem and they were worried about confidentiality. And in my six years of dealing exclusively with impaired lawyers, I have found that to be true. Lawyers will do anything to not let anybody know they need help. And in a disease like addiction, they need to actually ask for help, like you do for any chronic disease, like cancer or diabetes. But they don't want to ask for help because they're afraid of the stigma of other people knowing. And that's a, it's really critical because they have the disease and it can be treated, yet they'd rather sit with their disease and have it progress than actually reach for help. The final part of the study that I thought was interesting is that the study found that residential programs that specifically treat lawyers have special services for lawyers um, have a higher rate of success in terms of long-term sobriety than programs that don't address the specific issues of lawyers. So, I hope that's a I hope that's a, a decent summary of uh, at, at least the study that came out and what I what I think it means.
0: The, yes, that was certainly revealing and, and illuminating. What, what's the implication here for law firms in terms of ethics and liability?
1: Well, um, they also are, um, I, I can't even think of a, a word that is serious enough to describe it, except law, it, it it creates tremendous ethical problems. And liability right. for law firms. When I, when I do this talk at the conference, I will talk about these in more detail. But it's safe to say there are a number of ethical rules, that, the, the model rules by the ABA of professional responsibility that control the behavior and ethical obligations of lawyers as a licensed profession. And these are mandatory rules and there are rules just to give you an example that require that a lawyer be competent, that they be diligent, that they communicate well with their partners and with their clients, that they maintain confidentiality. Um, and, um, they also talk specifically about the responsibility of a partner or a supervising lawyer. So you don't even have to be the lawyer who's impaired. If you're in a law firm and you are a partner or you're supervising other lawyers, without getting into the details at this point, um, you have all kinds of responsibilities to make sure that. Uh, the lawyers in the firm are conforming to the rules of professional conduct. You have to make reasonable efforts to ensure that their conduct conforms to those rules. You're responsible for another lawyer's violation uh, if you ratify it and know that they are impaired. Um, and, uh, and you have reporting responsibilities if you don't successfully deal with it. There are also a couple ABA formal uh, opinions which are binding, that talk about the obligations that you have in a law firm with respect to mentally impaired lawyers and lawyers who may suffer from disability or impairment. So these are pretty interesting topics to talk about in detail. But suffice it to say that everybody in the law firm has some level of responsibility if he or she becomes knowledgeable about the impairment Of a lawyer practicing in that firm. Um, So that's the ethical point. The liability point is that there is is sort of um, the endless uh, possibility of liability. Uh, If an impaired lawyer um, uh, messes up a case, misses a deadline, makes a mistake, there's liability in terms of malpractice, Uh, the firm being sued for malpractice, and that's the whole firm that's sued for legal malpractice. Um, There's the possibility of uh, losing one's license or being suspended or being disciplined. Um, There is um, the natural um, uh, consequences that would flow to this to the individual lawyer who's impaired, to his or her family, obviously to the clients to whom a lawyer owes a fiduciary responsibility. The entire firm can be economically damaged. I think it's safe to say that you have um, certainly the consequences to the individual lawyer, which it can be health-related, it can be cognitively related, uh, it can um, affect his or her family, uh, it can um, create distrust and mistrust within the firm, and you have lawyers faced with difficult issues about whether to enable that lawyer or cover up for him, those kind of things, so that it can create all kinds of turmoil within the firm um, that doesn't happen with normal chronic disease. Diseases like, you know, heart conditions or uh, diabetes or cancer, where the lawyer just goes and gets help. Um, There's also issues with the firm where they might, um, they could potentially lose clients, they could potentially have their reputation injured, they could be significantly financially financially impacted, and a lot of times too, these lawyers. Are in their 40s and 50s and, and they're at the peak of their productivity and the firm has had lots of investment in them they've built up a client based um, they should be good for another 20 or 30 years of being a very productive member of that team and you have the potential of losing them uh, they can just quit they can make a lateral move to another firm um, and you've lost that lawyer for 20 or 30 years after that kind of investment and and after that kind of confidence that you've given uh, to that lawyer, there's also the profession itself that is hurt by these things happening. Um, society um, it has lawyers at all kinds of levels that can be impaired, whether it's government or politics or um, corporate corporations. I mean, a lot of lawyers don't necessarily uh, practice law in a law firm, and yet their impairment can affect all of that. Um, uh, it was interesting that, um, that the study itself um actually spoke about the overall damage this can do to every aspect of our society because lawyers are involved in everything from um you know from government to business to our financial stability um and their practice also um as a practical matter even though it might not technically be life and death on most levels um can be almost as serious Uh, lawyers can do Defend murder cases or capital cases where somebody's liberty or their life is at stake. Uh, lawyers can handle custody matters where people's the custody of somebody's child is at issue. They can handle a family business matter where the family business has been around for 100 years and the survival of that business is at stake. They might handle um, estates and trusts where somebody wants to make sure that their money and their savings is going, going to go to beneficiaries in the right way, in a a safe way, in a consistent way. Um, So there's all kinds of things that lawyers do that have a great impact on their clients and people connected to their clients, um, people who work for the businesses of their clients. So it's it's hard to overstate the extent to which lawyers are involved in everything we do and what impairment can do to that. So as a general statement, um, I think that covers the kind of damage um, that can be done, you know, by lawyers who are impaired, um, both on an ethical level as well as a practical level.
0: Absolutely. And and your session will cover 10 specific strategies for dealing with these challenges. Um, Let's walk through one of those strategies for our listeners today, just to give a taste of that.
1: Sure, I'm happy to. And what I'm going to do during the session, and this will be probably the heart of the session, is I've created 10 kind of action items that I think law firms can take now um which are going to make them i think better law firms i think it's going to help their lawyers um and their staffs identify more openly and more securely the uh, the fact that they have an a problem with impairment and so they can get treatment sooner than later and that they can show positive actions that are being taken in terms of the study and these really cold hard numbers they're able to tell their clients for example yes we read the same study and these numbers are horrible and even though we might we think we might not have that level of impairment we know there's some impairment and here are the steps we're taking to make sure that you are being served by a lawyer who has full competency so there's a lot of reasons to do it and um and I created 10 specific action items. I say I created, I mean, some of them are not earth-shaking, but 10 specific action items that that law firms can take today um, to start addressing these issues. I also will end my talk with 10 long-term solutions that law firms and the legal community and the profession can take to try to change this culture into one that's more a culture of wellness and acceptability uh, towards addiction, just like we have it now for many Mental health, and we have it for other chronic diseases. So that'll be the last part of my uh, talk later this spring. Um, but in terms of, of one specific thing they can do or action they can take, um, it sounds fairly simple, but it's a great place to start. And that really is to educate. Um, all members of the law firm, and this can be done in segments, there can be education for everybody from the management committee to the HR department, to partners, to associates, to the staff of the law firm, but education about issues like addiction, depression, uh, stress, balance, uh, and even issues like codependency and enabling and meditation, um, ways that they can get healthier and more well. And you're seeing that happen in a number of other industries where they're trying to create more of a life-work balance. They're trying to create, um, you know, more stable employees, uh, happier employees, and some of those same techniques are going to be successful in law firms. But I think one of the first things to do is to educate the firm about addiction and, the f- and to point out that addiction is a disease, which a lot of people don't understand. A lot of lawyers in particular think it's uh, an act of self-will, that their discipline's breaking down, or they should feel terrible, or they've lost their you know, they, they've they lost their mojo. What's wrong with them? Uh, they're behaving in negative, um, untrustworthy ways. And, in fact, it's a disease. It's a disease of the brain. It's been characterized by that as early as the 1950s by the American Medical Association. There's 10 years of research now on the fact it's a brain disease. And I think if lawyers and law firms and the staff can recognize it's a disease that can be treated – It's not the individual lawyer just suddenly falling apart after 20 years, but it's a disease that can be treated. It can take some of the stigma away and it can start to open the door for new policies, new procedures, uh, working with your malpractice carrier, with your healthcare folks, working perhaps with an expert in addiction, whether it's a treatment center or it's somebody that's an individual expert, but try to create pathways to, to uh, employees safely addressing this issue. So those kind of educational pieces, which can be done in groups, they can be done at retreats, um, you know, and there are a number of individuals who can give those talks and that information can be done to the group in a way that's non-threatening and can also Um, you know, though, lay out what's going to come later in terms of maybe specific things the firm does. Maybe maybe one of the talks is about a, a crisis protocol, what to do if there's uh, active impairment in the firm that's creating a problem? Um, how do you identify uh, impaired lawyers? What are the characteristics? If you think you have a colleague that's impaired, how do you approach them? What's a formal way to approach them? Um, and it can it can devolve into things like, um, um, you know, self-identification tools. Like somebody can come in and give a talk about addiction, and they can also provide the firm, for example, with a simple, Test that can be sent out to everybody in the firm. It's private, but it's a short test on identifying whether or not you're an addict or you have tendencies that are problematic. And it can be a short test they take. They can keep it private, but then the firm can give them resources to go to or deal with that are um, going to be helpful for that kind of problem. And, um, and they can do it in a private and confidential way. The employee, the employee Employee assistance programs that all law firms have can be good for certain issues that people are having personally, but they don't tend to be real well equipped typically for help with addiction. And many of the lawyers in the firm do not trust going to their employment assistance program because they believe that word's going to get out that they have this problem and they're so worried about the privacy, they're not going to utilize that. So there's a lot of that kind of educational work that can be brought in up front in a non-threatening way that can start to lay out uh, the foundation for changing the culture and helping long-term with this problem. So that's one of the 10 is what I would call an educational preventative piece.
0: Thank you so much for being here, Link, and I really appreciate you answering my questions. Thank you also to our listeners and subscribers. You can learn more from Link, Kristen, in April at ALA's annual conference and expo in Denver, Colorado. Now, you can read all about what's new at the 2017 conference, as well as register to join us there at alanet.org slash conf17. That's alanet.org. Dot org slash C O N F seventeen. Until next time.